The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Follow with me in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when, when kings uh, uh, go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from a roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent the messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink And to lie with my wife, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? I actually in, in, was expecting every one of you to answer that individually so we could have a long conversation. About it. All right. Okay. All right. Let's, uh, you guys ready to rock and roll? Of all the messages on David, I happen to get this one, you know, <laughs> which, you know, we can take that up with Gabe later. I'm sure he didn't purposely schedule to be out of town the one day we talk about the most controversial passage in the Old Testament. Okay, so um, today's uh, message, I've, been, I've given the title, Only Let Them See the Crown. I don't know if you guys watch a lot of Netflix series like I, I do, but I just, I just recently watched a series called The Crown, uh, which covers the transition from my home country, which is great, of, from King George VI to his younger, his younger daughter, who would then become Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, and there's this episode in this transitional period while her father's still alive and she's still princess, uh, where the, the young princess and her husband, Prince Philip, they're leaving for the first time from, from Great Britain 
to take her father's place on a traditional tour of the 12 nations that made up the British Commonwealth. And due to her father's health, unfortunately, she, she is asked to go on this trip instead. Um, and this tour is very much a tour of no, noble symbolism. If, if you guys know much, much about the, the, queens and, sorry, the, the kings and queens in England, they kind of play more of a, it's just a, I, I don't know how to describe it. You guys are Americans, you have presidents. They're, they're just, there's this moment of loyalty and nobility that we just hang on to because we're English and we like it. So <laughs> that's just pretty much it. Um, but so as she's on this tour, it's a very, very important as she speaks to these nations who don't have kings and queens at the time and part of the Commonwealth, they look to her or to the king at that time as, as the sovereign of the nations. Um, and as they're about to get on this flight, there's this awkward moment in the series where the, the then Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, hurries on the plane to give the young princess what to him, uh, and if you know Winston Churchill, he was all about honor and tradition. And he wants to give her some quite urgent and serious advice before she begins this tour of the Commonwealth in her father's stead. And he tells her with the most reverent severity and sincerity that to make sure that they only see the crown, always the crown, never the individual. The scene is obviously a deliberate setup by the director for a later scene while on the tour that the, the new young, uh, the new wed, uh, newlywed couple struggling with the pressures that the new public roles impose upon them, get into a private fight at their lodgings regarding a jealousy over a certain younger friend of Elizabeth's. And as the couple are fighting, um, and they run out of the house yelling at one another, Philip being chased by his furious wife Elizabeth, midstream in argument, they suddenly stop as they realize that the cameramen outside the house, who had been waiting there exciting to catch a glimpse of the royal couple, are filming the fight. Now Elizabeth, realizing the issue, quickly composes herself, walks back outside, and politely, humbly, and very Britishly, nobly, approaches the cameraman, stating that very nobly that this kind of thing happens in all marriages, and that she is sure that they understand. The cameraman, humbled in respect of her disposition and nobility, instantly honor her request, open the film camera, and give her the film as to keep it private. I describe that scene to you because it creates a clear contrast for us to notice something about our text today. Our text today is, about, is the history of a sacred people, the most sacred people in regards to their vocation and calling. And this story is regarding their greatest king. This is their hero, the underdog who became the giant slayer, a boy with stones and a sling that became a military force to be reckoned with, a noble and humble character a king who won the heart of his people and defeated their, defeated their surrounding enemies, a man of God's own heart, a king who God was with clearly in all that he did. And with all this in mind, I reflect on the scene from the crown I describe, and I look at this tragic text in, regarding David's fall, and I ask this very simple question. If this is functionally merely a moral tale in the Bible, needed as some example for later generations, to learn about staying busy and not lusting after someone else's wife, was it really necessary to expose the crown? There was no cameramen in those days. The act itself and the inner motivation was not publicly witnessed. Why couldn't the narrator, as he finalized the history, just leave this one incident out? Why couldn't he simply amend the script and protect the crown? Why couldn't he simply remove the film camera? The fact that the narrator did not, did not amend the script 
should give us great, great curiosity as we search the Scripture. So I want to frame this sermon around three things I believe the narrator seems to be wanting his reader to focus on in this story so that we might start to understand why that this tragic and horrible incident couldn't simply be amended out. Despite what this text is infamously known for, I want to argue today that the specific sin of adultery does not actually seem to be the primary point being highlighted in the story. Rather, the narrator seems to be primarily drawing out our attention in this tragedy-filled soap opera to something else that's going on in order to bring about a contrast between Israel's culture and Israel's God which is why my points in this sermon on sin are framed not around the actions of the people involved, but rather around God himself. I believe the narrator works through artful literary technique so that in this story, all would see that Yahweh was a God who first sees the sin above culture, who demands justice for sin beyond culture, and lastly, who brings an end to sin through culture. So on to the first point. Yahweh is a God who sees the sin above culture. The sin above culture. What do I mean by that? Well, to answer that, we need to recognize the difference of how our modern culture understands moral conviction and compared to the ancient culture that we find in Scripture. For time, I'll oversimplify it like this. We as modern Westerners are primarily a right and wrong, guilt, innocent based culture summed up in the classic parenting term, you should know better. Biblical culture, however, is primarily an honor-shame-based culture, summed up in the term, you brought shame upon the family. For our purpose, we need to focus on where moral conviction primarily comes from in these two cultures. In the Western right-wrong-based culture, it is introspective. We We expect that guilt and conviction should come from within the individual. In shame-based cultures, however, moral conviction primarily comes from the community. We in the the West have been bathing for centuries, however, in a culture of celebrated radical individualism, the Marlboro Man. And with that comes the assumption that moral conviction comes primarily from within the individual. We pride ourselves and we commend our children on recognizing right and wrong and from making the right choice from, from, with wisdom within themselves. So in a story like this, we are trained by our worldview to be tuned in to the personal sin and we are looking for the person to have remorse, to be plagued with guilt from within, self-conviction. If there is none, then we blame solely the individual for not resp- responding to inner conviction. However, we are unaware of how different this is to shame-based cultures which the Scripture comes from. Paul Hebert said this of shame-based cultures. Shame is a reaction to other people's criticism, an acute personal embarrassment at our failure to live up to our obligations and expectations that others have of us. In true shame-oriented cultures, every person has a place and a duty in the society. One maintains self-respect not by choosing what is good rather than what is evil, but choosing what is expected of one. Richard Randolph's, sorry, Randolph Richards, that's a backwards version of his name, made this important distinction regarding shame-based cultures. 
and this is very important, so listen carefully. In a shame culture, it is not the guilty conscience, but the community that punishes the offender by shaming him. So now with this concept in our minds, it will be quite clear to see that the theme of honor and shame saturates this story about David from start to finish. And we have to be on the lookout for that. And that leads me to the conclusion that the narrator does not want us to focus on David's reaction to the sin of adultery and this treacherous murder as the primary focus of the story. Rather, the focus is actually on Israel's response as a nation to David's sin in contrast to God's reaction to David's sin. That is the primary point that the author wants us to see. As we go back to key portions of the text, I want you to pay close attention to the specific honor and shame language used throughout. So I'm going to just read, reread a couple of passages back from that we've already gone through, just to, for you to pay attention to this honor-shame language. So in the beginning of verse 1, it says, It came about in the spring, at the time that kings go out, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. They ravaged all of the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David was remaining in Jerusalem. The very first line of the story is designed to focus on shame. The narrator is trying to get your attention with this language that this is a story primarily about shame. The cultural role and expectation is that the time kings this that this is the time that kings go out, but David was remaining in Jerusalem. Do you see the contrast there is to set you up straight away to see the shame of the whole story. The narrator lets us know straight out the gate what's coming our way that this whole story is going to be about shame. So we go on. It happened that late one, late one afternoon that David got up from his bed and walked about on the roof of the king's house, and he saw a woman bathing on her roof. Now the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now I'm not going to spend too long on speculating the opinions of why Bathsheba happens to be bathing on the roof. Um, however, it is worth noting that certain scholars note that in ancient cultures, people were cognitively aware of their position to the place of power. David can obviously see Bathsheba, so he's at his palace. It's not obviously far. In fact, most uh, people believe that most generals and people of importance were staged closer to the king's palace in order of importance. In addition, it happens to be evening. David note that David gets out of bed, so it's dark. Now, we don't have electricity in these days, so obviously Bathsheba has set enough light for someone to be able to see her quite well from the king's palace, which could be argued, and I'm not going to insinuate this, but it could be argued that Bathsheba may have intended to be seen by the king. She was obviously cognitively aware of her position to the palace, and you would really be naive to not be cognitively aware of where you were to the seat of power in that day. Moving on, however, I do not believe this line that when, when, uh, when David asked his servant about, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I do not believe that this line regarding who Bathsheba is, is used to show the wisdom of the informant, giving an answer in the form of a question, as that would be dishonorable in that culture. It is said in a customary way by a servant in a manner to honor the king, in such a way as to reiter reiter sorry, reiterate 
known truth, public truth, in the form of a question. And basically this, if you know something that someone else doesn't know, but they're in a higher power, you give them the suggestion. So he says, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David can therefore say, yes, you're correct. That is who she is, even if he didn't know. However, it is also said as a way of alerting the shame that he might be, uh, the shame of, of that which he might be thinking of doing. It is a polite and formal moment of grace by the way of reminder that this is someone else's wife. This line is creatively used to again show us the shame of it all, which is why what transpires next is of such importance. The potential public shame is presented by the servant in the form of a question, and David ignores it. The narrator gives us no indication by the storytelling techniques available to him that David stopped to contemplate his desire or even wrestled with it internally. Rather, the narrator purposefully uses a literary technique of speeding through David's actions by quick descriptions of actions with no external or internal dialogue whatsoever to show how crass this decision was. Just as a side note, if you're paying attention to the art of the Old Testament, it's amazing the artwork that they use to basically do what we don't have today in modern media. When you see a lot of quick statements quickly, it's a way of basically saying there's no thought involved in this. It's very carnal. When there's a long, massive dialogue, he's trying to show you what's important. David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So listen to the speed of what comes next. Then David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he slept with her. It's just, it's just back to back. There's no detail. There's no dialogue. There's no discussion. There's no, it's just bam, bam, bam. It's probably a bad use of terms, but anyway. It's, <laughs> you get what I'm saying. All right. Uh, the narrator, I knew I'd trip up somewhere in this. I mean, the narrator uses this sped up transaction to show the coarseness of David's conduct, the lack of concern in his actions. The passage is lacking details and time. It's all fast and back to back. It's unreflective. However, and this is important, they also give us no indication that those he sent to bring her hesitated or tried to challenge the king outside of this initial statement of identification of who Bathsheba was. Of course, this is what Mediterranean kings of that day did. Kings took what they wanted, and no culture challenges this kind of thing in that day. Who intervenes in the midst of powerful men? No, you either glory in the violence of such men to produce infamous fear like the historians of many other nations did at the time, or you live through it and secretly amend the script and paint a picture of nothing but nobility. You protect the image of the crown. So we go on in this tragic story. We then see Bathsheba sent away from David's house. Now, this could be either or. It, It sounds to me the language used seems again to indicating possible shame in the event. He sent her for her, and she, is, she does not merely leave, but she is sent away with no indication of future commitment. It seems as if he's basically done with her. Of course, the inevitable happens, and Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and now surely this becomes an issue of public shame, and David's honor is in jeopardy. Because of this, David summons for him, from Uriah from war to work out something with him to protect and restore his honor as king. It is important to note that the text leads us to believe that for David, it is about restoring his honor as king. It does not show us 
there is any internal remorse or inner conviction for the actual sin of adultery. We, have then drawn out, we have then have this drawn-out series of exchanges between David and Uriah. And the fact that this dialogue between David and Uriah is, um, is drawn out is very important as it contrasts to the quick, non-descriptive exchange between David and Bathsheba, which tells you, and we even know this as Westerners as, this is the story of David and Bathsheba. Realistically, if you look at the time spent and the kind of narration, it's really a story between David and Uriah. Maybe we just like the juicier content, so we... Stick with Uriah and David, which says something about our own culture, possibly. Um, So the detailed interaction of David trying to get Uriah to go home to sleep with his wife without ever making the outright suggestion, although the text seems to, to clearly show us that Uriah gets what David is after, even if David never specifically uses the words. So really quickly, I want to fly through. If we go through verses 8 through 13, in the discussion through Uriah and David, you'll notice that over and over again, the narrator says, go down to your house, go down to your house. It's, it's in there six times, the author says, it's tr- David's trying to get Uriah to go down to his house and, 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 and Uriah is responding this way. So this tells me that the, the, the narrator is trying to say that this has become a point of contention between the two. To be quite honest with you, this whole exchange had seemed almost comical to me in the way I'd viewed it before. As da- you know, before as David feeling guilty and try to cover up his sin, and the failed attempts of David to convince this noble yet seemingly naive warrior to go down and lay with his wife while he is home. I'd read this and I just figured, Uriah, don't you get what's happening here? Just, um, and that's the way I'd originally saw it. But the, however, I'm now convinced that the narrator is describing a much darker and more painful exchange between these two men than I had thought. So allow me to persist in what might be warranted speculation here. I no longer believe Uriah Uriah is just absolutely naive. I I don't think he's just stupid. Rather, I believe he knows what has happened by the time he meets David. Or at least he was starting to speculate what had happened between David and his wife before they had met. I believe he has heard the whispers of this betrayal amongst the people. And those whispers and rumors are sadly confirmed in his mind by in his mind, by David's strange summoning of him. He's a mercenary, a soldier from battle, and now he's being summoned as if he were a diplomat or a messenger. And also from this odd questioning regarding how the army is faring, followed by the sudden request and pressure to get him to go home. And he now realizes that David has summoned him because he needs a way to protect his honor. He needs a way of escape. Now, I believe Uriah honorably loves David, as all of Israel did, even more so as one of his loyal 30 mighty men that followed him him in the wilderness against Saul. But in his brokenness and dedication to honor as a warrior, I believe he will not give David the satisfaction of reclaiming his own honor. He will not relieve him of the public shame that is coming if Uriah doesn't take this upon himself. Simply, if Uriah just goes home, everyone can say, well, technically the baby's Uriah's and and everything's saved. All public shame is done away with which tells me that I believe that when Uriah goes down and is asked to go to his house and he just goes down to the king's doorway, it's a public declaration in his own way that he's not going to give him a way out. You can tell this by the fact that people run up and tell David it was told to him, Uriah hasn't gone home. You can also read between the lines of Uriah's final response to David when he's asked yet again why he did not go home to his wife while he was back from battle. Listen to the words of of Uriah, and if you can, just picture with me 
At this place, I believe there's some anger going on between them, and I think Uriah is almost letting out the fact that he really knows. The ark in Israel and Judah are living in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping on the surface of the open field. And I, shall I go to my house and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will surely not do this thing. Do you see that by implication, Uriah is highly offending the warrior he knows from being in Jerusalem as king while the army is at war, leaving his commander Joab doing his job. And the ark, the presence of God itself that David had so honored and danced before is out there in the field while David is home. Uriah is indirectly shaming David. What makes all of this more tragic is how much Uriah's honorable language um, to David actually resembles the same honor that made us fall in love with David in the first place. I don't know if you guys remember when you're reading about David and he sends the troops over the battlefield to get the water and they come, or he says, I just wish I had a glass of water from my homeland and the two uh, men go and bring it back and David is just so honorable. He pours out the water and says something to the effect of, how could I drink this when you sacrifice your life? It's just uncannily ironic how similar the honor of Uriah is in this situation. And I think the narrator is making that contrast to us to see how far David has fallen. The story goes on in this sad tragedy that David sends a letter commanding Joab to put Uriah in the place of death. And Joab complies. In my mention, the narrator shows no hesitation on Joab's part to go through with this, even though uh, Josephus says that Uriah was actually um, Joab's private um, armor bearer, which makes it just even more disturbing. This is some good soap opera stuff. Um, And of course, Uriah dies according to David's plan. David's honor is restored by taking Bathsheba as his wife after the mourning for her husband is done, and all seems well. Now, although no one here would say that David's personal sin is not gleaming from the pages of this passage, what I am suggesting is this, that the focus of this story is a story of cultural sin. David is the one who engages in the individual transgression, no doubt. Yet, it is the culture that turns a blind eye and accepts it, keeps it quiet and forgotten, and does not bring the shame that was necessary for David's moral conviction, and moves on beyond it, ignores the knowledge or even suspicious whispers concerning it, and demands no justice for it. It is our own cultural assumptions that lead us to see a level of privacy that was unknown in that cultural in that culture, and this and, and that this is all happening in secret. There is definitely a sense of attempted discreetness about it, and what has happened is definitely not. But what has happened is definitely known. It is it is just unfortunately silently ignored, which makes the story, this story all the more complicated and saddening. It is the story actually of injustice against one for the sake of the many. And this is the focus of the narrator, the cultural acceptance of sin that sets us up for the contrast he makes to it with the character and actions of Israel's God that we see at the end of the text. To see this contrast the most clearly, we must juxtapose and compare two sentences that the narrator deliberately puts against each other in our text. And we actually didn't read this part, so you have to forgive me. It's later in between verses 17 and 27. But there's two statements that make this very clear that what the narrator is going after. Sorry, real quick, what time do we end up here? I've got my timing here. 
completely forgot. Sorry to interrupt the seminar. I know you're all breathtaking. What's next? But still. <laughs> About 15 minutes. Okay. It's at 10.45. All right. Um, so basically, and as I said before, if the Old Testament writer had the use of video editing, I think these two passages that I'm about to read to you would have been played back to back in slow motion. But because he doesn't have that, he uses in what they only had in that day, which was a play of words. So basically, no slow motion. Let's use the play on words. He takes one sentence that David says to Joab after he's instructed him to kill um, Uriah, and then he personally interjects as the narrator to provide us with the personal view of God on the matter using the exact same sentence. It's a play on words to get our attention. Listen to this exchange between David and the messengers sent to and from Joab, his commander, who was compiled without, um, who was complied. The messenger said to David, Because the men overpowered us, the men came out to the field, but we were forced back to the entrance of the gate. The archers shot at your servants from atop the wall, and some of the servants of, you, of, of the king died. Your servant Uriah the Hittite also died. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say, thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter be evil in your eyes. Now one and then another the sword will devour. Now, if we compare this um, with, the narr- um, with what the narrator says after Uriah is dead, the morning is over and David takes Bathsheba as his wife. It says this, When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his household, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing which David had done was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. The story seemed to be drawing to a close in verse, close in verse 27. In a nutshell, Uriah dies, Bathsheba goes through his mourning, and the narrative quickly goes through. And then, she, and then she was done mourning, David bought her, he married her, and she bore him a son. It's very quick. It's just, at the end of the day, at verse 27, as far as Israel was concerned, the story's over. Everything's resolved. David keeps his honor, Bathsheba keeps her honor, she's married, the child is David's, everything's good. Everything had been wrapped up, wrapped up on David's end. This unjust event had happened, Uriah was dead, Bathsheba had mourned, and now David took her as wife, and the son can be claimed as his. In the eyes of society, everything was able to continue. Honor was intact, at least on paper. Now everything can get back to the way it was. Problem solved. Culture and society had moved on from this injustice. What's done is done. Yet as we assume all is closed, the narrator lets out this line, and it should be bold to us. But the thing which David had done was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Culture and society can have acceptable sins in corporately, that it corporately turns a blind eye to, and it can have those people that it neglects to pursue justice for. But Yahweh is the God who sees the sin above culture. At this point, I'm hoping that you got what I just said. <laughs> in a nutshell, to sum it up, it didn't. And we could look at this as society today. Are there things, are there sins that we let as a culture accept that we're okay with, that we turn a blind eye to? But the passage is showing us in this instance that God is the one who sees beyond that. He is above culture. He is above what we accept. His standard is transcendent to all cultures. So jumping on from that to point number two here. Yahweh is the God who demands justice for sin 
beyond culture. Now, the second unique attribute of Yahweh that I think the narrator is trying to show us is through subtle implication of the first. Not only does he see the sin that a culture would accept within itself, he sees and demands justice for the sin committed upon those beyond one's own culture. What do I mean by that? I've dwelt upon the fact that Uriah was a Hittite. He has obviously joined Israel following its king, and more than that, he happens to be one of David's most elite men, his, top, his part of his 30 men, his 30 mighty warriors. However, he is not an eth- by ethnicity an Israelite. He is a foreigner, assimilated no doubt, yet still a foreigner. And I couldn't help ask myself the question as I read this story, would it have been different if, it was, if his name had been Uriah the Israelite? As I dwelled upon how those involved could have turned a blind eye to such a horrible injustice, I started to dwell upon how this story is really the turning point for the reader in its introduction to David. From our first inception, sorry, for our first introduction to David as the, four, um, as the forgotten son, a young shepherd boy, not even considered by his father when Samuel comes to seek out the new king, and the humble start of his career under a deranged Saul, to his finally becoming king. To this point, David has been what we would call an answer to prayer to the people of Israel. His humility and nobility and character move you to tears when reading about him. His devotion to God is without precedent. He has become a king. He has become the king that they had longed for. He has become the military giant that this previous nation of slaves could have only dreamed of. A general who had won the fear of his enemies. A king who had won the love of his people. I see him here not as a Sunday school drawing of a young, scantily dressed boy with a sling against a giant, rather more in the depiction that Russell Crowe gave of the Roman general Maximus. There's a picture somewhere of... I'm not saying David looked like that, but if you get what I'm saying, if we have images of this boy with a sling, you've got to see at this point he is a general. He has, loved the one, he has won the love of his soldiers and of his people. This is more a better depiction of what they would have seen David as in this day. From now on, you'll all think of David as Russell Crowe. I thought he could be a great David in a movie, but anyway. Um, God has been with him and has given him victory after victory. He has secured respect, fear, and peace from Israel's enemies so that they are secure and well-positioned, never to be enslaved again. Do not forget that Israel, for 400 years, was a slave to the Egyptians. Then they come through the wilderness. This is a great moment in their history. David, they are, um, for this one time in Israel's life, they are actually on top of the world. They feel protected. Their king is the one that's ruling. Their king is the one that's coming back with victories. The sense of security had never been higher. And now this, this one act of lust that led to a horrible injustice. What would a nation do? What would its leaders do? Was it worth them destroying all of this for one single foreigner? Is it possible that this very black and white issue of justice became very gray due to what was at stake. I believe the narrator of this whole story couldn't just slide this story off the table, couldn't pretty it up, tweak the facts to downplay the situation as much as possible. He couldn't amend the script in order to protect the crown because his priority as the narrator is the character of Israel's God, 
not the protection of its history. He wants us to see that Yahweh is the God who demands justice for sin beyond one's culture. And see how passionate this issue of Uriah the Hittite is to God. The action by God is not simply brushed aside in the Scripture as some small shortcoming in a great political career. It is not hidden from public record and justified or excused if accidentally brought up in debate. It's not one of those things that politicians bring out at the last minute. It is an important part of Israel's history. This action and Uriah's name is permanently associated with David's name after this point. In 1 Kings 15, when the narrator begins his narration of the kings of David, continually comparing them to David's heart after God, note the amendment to David's name. In 1 Kings 15, it says this, For the sake of David, Yahweh his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by establishing his son after him by causing Jerusalem to exist. Because David did right in the eyes of Yahweh and didn't turn aside from all that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. From this point onwards, David's name is continually associated with Uriah the Hittite. Somehow, and for some reason, even this most tragic and damaging event in Israel's king's history remains etched in its remembrance, even when given the opportunity not to bring attention to it. The crown and all its flaws on display for an observing world to see. My last point. Point three, Yahweh is the God who brings an end to sin through culture. I'm going to admit this. I struggled to find some point three. And apparently it's, it's an unwritten law in the midst of, of um, preaching that you have to have three points. I, I would have stopped it too, but apparently you have to have the third one. And to be honest with you, I, I mean, some way... How in, I was telling my wife, how do I land this plane when you really look at this passage? It's just really ugly and tragic and nasty and soap opera-ish, and there just is no happy ending in this. How can I end on a joyful note? And I kept thinking to myself that I needed to end with the gospel, somehow falling under some momentary guise that the gospel was some other happy story disconnected from the one I'd just been in. But no, this tragic narrative that we have been in is the one that God chose to bring redemption through. It's ugly, it's adulterous, it's murderous. There is death and there's slavery, there's rape and turmoil, betrayal and letdown. It's filled with humanity. All the dirty laundry is there subject to scrutiny for all the world to see. And Jesus was born not into a vacuum, but he came through a culture, and specifically this culture. He had a lineage. He came with a history, a narrative, a genealogy before his name. Even in Matthew, it says, And Nashon became the father of Salmon, and Salmon became the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz became the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse became the father of David the king, and David became the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You can't even escape it a thousand years later when you get to the gospel. It's still hanging to David's name. Let me ask you, why in the world did Matthew not feel, it's been a thousand years, 
Maybe people don't need to know about this anymore. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. Maybe they got the point, stay off rooftops and don't have adultery. It's such deeper than that. It's so deeper than that. And God saw fit that it happened that way. And Jesus grew up in this specific culture. These stories, these memories, singing these psalms. And I thought about this. Jesus would have grown up reading and feeling maybe that moment that Uriah felt. Uriah, as he realizes the inevitable injustice that is about to befall him as his brothers in arms draw back from him in battle and he stands alone. Jesus would have read this story of injustice against the one for the sake of the many. He would have grown up in the corner of a synagogue somewhere reading the broken heart of David in the psalm wrote in response to God's rebuke of his act against Uriah. He would have read his own lip, with his own lips the words of his ancestor, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and from my sin cleanse me. For I myself know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, I have sinned and done what is evil in your eyes, so that you are correct when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts you make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And somehow, sitting there in Nazareth under Roman occupation, Jesus, knowing in his bones, sensing in the words, feeling this call that he must someday be part of the making right of all of this wrong, bringing an end to all of this tragedy, believing as his ancestors that Yahweh would be faithful to his covenantal promise, even to a broken David, to give his descendant an everlasting kingdom. We can find hope in the mess of all of it today, the mess of our history as a nation, as a people. For the God we serve, Yahweh, is the God who brought the one who would bring an end to sin through a culture full of such same tragedy and pain. And he does not want the world to only see the crown, but rather all the tragedies and mess, so they may see him bear it all upon himself, and by that, re- by that redeem all things, and put all things right again. If I just end in prayer. Father, we come to you as Yahweh, the God that we see in Scripture And you didn't give us a very nice, polite book. You didn't give us a very nice, politically correct, beautiful, free of sin book. You gave us one full of what we know to be reality, the mess of humanity. And you brought Jesus, you brought him through that culture in order to redeem it all. I pray that you would be with us as the church as we go out into the world, not to be fake people, people of nothing but nothing but a fake world that only showed the world the crown, that we, but we actually would come and embrace all the pain and sin of the world and show that through the God that we proclaim, you build and make beautiful things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.